0: One of the wonderful things about this time of the year is you get to see faces that you haven't seen in a while. And it is glorious to have some of our college and university students home. Welcome. It's good to have you guys back. We have missed you. And in addition to that, it's always great when uh, we have those of us that have returned to us after they have been united to become one flesh in Christ. Welcome, Mr. and Mrs. Doloff. It's good to have you guys worshiping with us together. And then also, I don't know if y'all noticed it or not, but our dear brother, Doug Thomas, he made the commitment to be here with us this morning. Uh, he showed up with his apparatus. Doug, thank you. If you need to stand up, we definitely want to give you permission to do that, just not to preach a sermon to us over here. Uh, I joked with Doug after uh, his surgery that I hoped that uh, they would put one of those cones like they put around a dog, you know, a, a cone of silence maybe to put it around there. But, uh, brother, thank you. Man, your, your, your faithfulness um, inspires us. Let's pray. God, we come to you thanking you that, Lord, the most important person that is present here today is the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he is eternally present with us. He is united with us because of the great plan that you put into place that goes all the way back from the very beginning of the story. And so, Lord, we pray as we continue our series and Advent and Abraham, that, Lord, you would continue to, to have our minds just be blown away and to be in awe of what you have done to obtain such a great salvation. And may we not neglect it, Lord. May we look upon it and may we relish in it, as our brother Brian has said earlier. May we cherish it. May we return to it all the days of our lives, Lord and to be in praise and awe of you. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, if this is your first time visiting Providence, then this might seem like the oddest Christmas Eve sermon you've ever heard. Please allow me to explain what we're doing here. Last January, we started a verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. And at the 1st of December, we completed the portion of the book that deals with Abraham. Therefore, with Advent season upon us, we've taken the time to to look at how the promise made to Abraham, which he believed by faith, came through the incarnation of Jesus the Christ. Our first sermon looked at the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, where not only the Jews, but those outside the blood descendants of Abraham were looking for a son to be born who would rule righteously and establish this great kingdom that was promised to Abraham. And last week we saw from Romans 4 and 5 how a Hebrew of Hebrews, the Apostle Paul, understood how this promise was to be applied both to Jew and pagan alike. And our conclusion was by faith, not through some works of the law of God, but simply believing that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to cover our sins. That's it. Nothing else is required. The first coming of Jesus took care of that. So now that we know how our entrance to the kingdom was obtained, our question this morning is how our security in it is maintained. Once again, I want us to return to the writings of the Apostle Paul. This time is to his letter to the churches in Galatia. Please turn to Galatians chapter 3 if you're not already there. If you're not familiar with the recipients of this letter, Galatia is a region. It's not a city, it's a region, a Roman province actually, within Asia Minor. And the Christians within these churches would have been primarily former pagans. However, some former Jews showed up in these churches and told the members that they should also place themselves under the Mosaic law now that they had received Christ. If they were saved, then obviously they would want to prove it by living according to God's laws for the Jews. So now Paul is about to answer an important question that is incredibly relevant for us today. Once one receives salvation from Jesus, which is the promise made to Abraham to be included into his kingdom, how does one retain or keep it to ensure that you don't lose it? And I'm sure that each of us have had such thoughts before. You came to saving faith believing that Jesus died for your sins. You had an exuberant and an emotional experience. You were sure that your faith was in Christ and you wanted to live for him and be like him. But then you commit some heinous sin that you said you would never do. You promised yourself, I will never do this, and you backtalked your parents. You, you cheated on a test. You looked at pornography. You had murderous thoughts against your own spouse, and you lashed out with them at this hateful speech. You lied to a friend where you overshared information that you were supposed to keep to yourself. And afterwards, this shame just came over you. And you begin to wonder, well, am I really saved? Did I do enough for my salvation? Surely if I was a Christian, I wouldn't have done that. And you begin to wonder if you have somehow lost your salvation and you're no longer included in the promise to Abraham and that you must do something else to atone for it. It wasn't long ago that that I was in a grocery store, and I picked up some flowers for Lisa, just out of love. But the guy who was standing behind me asked, well, someone must be in the doghouse, as if my flowers were going to atone for my sin. A lot of times, I think we do the same thing. So this question is very important. It's one of the number one questions that I deal with in my counseling. And from chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 7, Paul will answer this important question of how does one maintain their salvation and stay within the promise? And he's going to do so under three headings. Now, let me share those with you. And I promise that we will get out in time, so don't panic when you see that I plan to cover 36 verses this morning, all right? The three headings are, number one, righteousness, or right standing before God, has always been through faith in Christ. Righteousness has always been through faith in Christ. We covered much of that from Romans 4 last week. Number two, Paul will show the difference between a promise and a merit. Or we might want to interpret that as a promise and a wage, as though you deserve something. Paul's going to show this difference between a promise and a merit. And number three, he describes what it looks like to be an heir of the promise. He's going to describe what it looks like to be an heir of the promise. And I promise, I promise on this, that there is an important part about Christmas and the incarnation within the text here. Okay, we're going to get to that. So let me begin here with an illustration that I think can help us. Imagine, if you will, a little boy watching an advertisement of a remote-control car. This car is so cool. It has rechargeable batteries, and it can climb over anything, including the household dog. The commercial showed it, so it had to be true. And it is super fast. And the children in the commercial are having so much fun playing with it. So the little boy begs his parents to give him the remote-control car for Christmas. And the parents give him one. That the day before, they charge up the car so that the boy can play with it immediately. And the next day, he opens the present, and he plays with that car all day. He chases around the family cat trying to run it over. He tries to run over his little sister. He takes it outside and, and zooms up and down the street. He has a grand old time that whole day. But then he wakes up the next day, and the car is moving slower and slower until it finally stops. So to continue playing with the car, he sits down on the carpet and he manually begins to, to push it around. And sometimes he, he makes it fly and sometimes he gets up to try to chase the cat with it again. But everything he is doing with the car is with his own self-propulsion. Eventually, he gets tired of this and he just throws, the to- throws it in the toy basket with all the other cars because it's no different from them at this point. Now, we all know what the problem is, don't we? The battery is dead, and it needs to be returned to its power source. Otherwise, it will not work the way that it was designed. And the only way to make it look like it was doing what it was designed to do was for the boy to use his own power to make it work. Sadly, this describes the condition of the Galatians. They were in danger of losing the power source and trying to look Christ-like without Christ. Now, let's pick this up in chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, notice Paul's rebuke. He calls them fools. He asks, who's cast a spell on you? And now he makes the most important point in the whole letter with this next sentence. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now you may wonder, why is this so important? But it is critical to the salvation of the Galatians and to our own. Paul states that when the gospel, the good news was presented to them, the most important part was Jesus Christ dying on the cross. The son of God who was sinless and perfect in every way was crucified on their behalf. Was that not sufficient enough? That was the message. Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Not, let me walk you through the finer points of the Ten Commandments. Not, let's work our way in a small group through the Talmud. Not, let me show you the the right way to eat through the Daniel diet. And certainly not, come unto circumcision all who are weary and heavy laden. No, the primary point of Christian religion is Jesus Christ crucified. That alone is what saves us. Upon that rest our hope. That is the truth in which our hope and our faith must be in. So now Paul's going to ask a few rhetorical questions showing the idiocy of their current logic of thinking that they must maintain their connection to the promise of Abraham within their own power. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, and if indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? All of these questions point to how did your life change, Galatians? Was it by the Holy Spirit who came to you when you heard about Jesus Christ crucified? Or was it when you heard about the law? When you suffered persecution, did you do so joyfully because you were maintaining the law of Moses or because the Spirit who came to you by faith empowered you to endure? They were not saved because they kept the law. They were saved because they believed the message. Why would they think that they would have to stay saved by keeping the law? Well, in this next section from verses 6 through 14, Paul will ask, what do you think Christ came to do? To bring a curse upon the Galatians or to bless them by taking away the curse? Now, I don't like how the ESV translates verse 6 as part of the question in verse 5. I think Paul is making a statement here and proceeding from that. Verse 6 Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham." Paul goes back to the original promise of why the Gentiles and the pagans can be included in the kingdom. It has always been by faith. He quotes Genesis 15 6 Just as Abraham believed and received right standing before God, so too does anyone who believes in the same way becomes an heir of Abraham. Verse 8, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. goes all the way back to Genesis 12, verse 3. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul is doubling down on this point that righteousness before God has always been about faith in the promise, not adherence to the law. Why did Jesus come? To put them under the law or to free us from the law? Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, and he quotes from the law, Deuteronomy 27 verse 26, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's a direct quote from the old same Old Testament from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. If, if you say you're going to be righteous before God by living according to the standard of the law, then you must maintain all of it at all times. Otherwise, you must be punished and cursed for each and every transgression. So did Jesus come to keep us under the curse or to relieve us from the curse? Well, Paul says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, here's Deuteronomy 21, 23, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I love how he just used the word we there. <laughs> Paul is including himself as a former Jew. This is the only one one can, way that one can enter the blessing of Abraham. Christ crucified came to remove the curse. So instead of punishment, we can be blessed. Now, in section 2 here, Paul is going to explain the difference between a promise and earning something. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Yahweh made a promise to Abraham. He did not make it conditional as though Abraham should somehow earn it. God said, I am going to do this for your offspring, and Abraham believed it. The conditions of the promise did not change. So one might ask then, verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by intermediary. And by angels, we should understand that means divine messengers who revealed God's righteous ways progressively over the years. And it implies, too, that the law was temporary rather than long standing. Verse 20. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. The point here is that God didn't change his mind over the centuries, his righteous standard has always been the same. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So hang on to that thought of the law being our guardian for just a moment until we get to the next chapter. But note that its function was to hold us accountable until Christ, the offspring, came. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So let's think on this for just a moment. God had no expectation that any one of us could keep his divine law. Neither heathens like us who have traces of it internally, nor Jews who had the written law before them. But now that Christ, the Son of God, has come, who could keep the law, who is the perfect righteous sacrifice, all can come to him in Christ. Jew or Gentile? male or female, rich or poor, American or Mexican, white or brown, it doesn't matter. Through faith in Christ and not the law, we can all become sons of God. That is the promise here. And by the way, Just to make sure everybody understands. The point here is to magnify Christ in us. The point is to point towards Jesus, that we are all in Jesus. It's not to say that there aren't distinctions between Jew and Greek or slave or free or male or female. God likes those distinctions. He created those distinctions. The point is, is that when we approach Him, we approach Him as in the same righteousness that Jesus Christ has. Now, it's important, and it's not meant to be sexist here, that we hold on to the son imagery. Inheritances passed down from the patriarchs to the oldest son in Jewish tradition, unless the Lord specifically intervened. And even then, it was still to a male heir. Now, think of the argument that Paul just laid out here. The promise came to Abraham and would pass to him through the offspring, singular, not plural. It was a promise not something you earned. If I tell Lisa, I promise I'm going to do this for you, it is not done with an expectation that she would do something first before I keep my promise. That promise was given through the offspring and Jesus is the offspring. And if you have faith in Christ, then verse 27, you are united with Christ, which makes you co-heirs of the promise, no matter your nationality, your gender, or your station in life. It's not living according to the law that keeps you saved. It is you being united with Christ by faith. Before Jesus came, we were all under the law, whether we knew it or not. God's holiness was was being impressed upon our hearts. And we feel this keen desire to do right even when we live in a sinful environment. The law reminds us that we are slaves to sin until Christ frees us through the promise. That is why the law is a guardian for us until now. Now we should ask, what is the difference for the heirs of the promise? Are we supposed to live as though we are still under the law? Is that what God is expecting now? That's Paul's next point in chapter four, verse one. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, in typical first century household, everyone was treated the same. Heirs were the same as their little brothers or servants within the household. You still had to do your homework, and you still had to do your chores just like everyone else. You, you still were subjected to the same environment as everyone else. You could get sick. You had to wear the same hand-me-downs as everyone else. You had to, to sleep in the same room with others. There was no special treatment until you received the inheritance, till you were put in your proper right station and place. Fathers thought this was a good thing for their sons so that in the future they would be benevolent leaders in their homes. Now, I promised you, There would be Christmas or Advent, whichever one you want to call it, and here it is. What changed our station in life? Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Do you see that? God's Son came. He was born of a woman in the flesh, and He was subjected to the same law as all of us. Why? Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. (sighs) Cover your mouth. (laughs) Be in awe. He did this so that we who believe in Christ might be united with him and also become children of the living God, sons no less, meaning we too get an inheritance Do you realize that is what has happened? That's what's transpired through Christ's coming? You are a co-heir with Christ. I should have got an amen at least. (laughs) At the bare minimum. Some of you should have been falling out of your pews. If y'all had only seen Doug at that point. (laughs) Weebling and wobbling as I said that. You are a co-heir with Christ. That means when God looks at you, who does He see? His Son. You are received into God's presence, the creator of the universe that we've been studying about in Genesis, the holy magnified one, the one whom angels surround him shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. You are received into his presence just as Jesus Christ is received. Wow, that that should blow us away. So, how do we know this? How do we know that this change has come about? Verse 6 And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Hallelujah. Which means praise Yahweh, by the way. In Christ, you are not a slave, you are a son forever and always. You are an heir because the Holy Spirit is inside of you, allowing you to call God the Father by His most intimate title, Daddy. You should live not as one under the law, but one who is a brother in Christ. Complete access and love from the Father. This is why Christ's first advent is so important. So think of Paul's logic here. Can one inherit the promise to Abraham by living according to the law? No. It can only come through Christ, the offspring of Abraham. Once your faith is in Christ, you must now live according to the law in order to keep your place in the promise? No. It was obtained by your union with Christ. It was because Christ fought the slavery of the law and he won. He redeemed you from the law. This is why Paul ridiculed the Galatian Christians. Why would you want to subject yourself to the Mosaic law if its purpose was now over? Yes, you would want to desire to emulate your holy king and look like a son, which is the next part of this letter, by the way. But you certainly shouldn't think that your personal holiness is somehow atoning for your sin or meriting your present salvation in any way. That's just plain foolishness. So think about our illustration earlier of the remote control car. How silly we must look pushing our car with its dead battery when all we have to use is our union with Christ to charge us up and to function the way we were supposed to. And brother and sister, if that is what you're doing right now, thinking, well, I blew it, I cannot live up to the Christian life, plug in your power cord and go back to your faith in Christ. Look to Jesus. Instead of residing in guilt over what you've done, thinking, well, I, I, I've got to do a few goods to do good deeds to make up for that, or I've got to go to confession, or i got to go to church when I feel ashamed, or i got to give money in the offering plate, or i got to get involved in a Bible study. Stop it. Your battery is dead. Go first to Christ and renew your faith in Him. It's not about your behavior. It's about your repentance and faith of going back and relying on the gospel. That is the only thing that can save you, and it's the only thing that can keep you saved. God designed this beautiful plan of salvation that involved his one and only begotten son who enables you to receive the spirit of God. It is magnificent. And you want to go back to living by the rules? No. Please don't do that. Don't go back to that. Come receive the whole Christ, all of him. Enter through the gate. Come to the living water. Come to the bread of life that will recharge your soul and grant you joy and peace and freedom. Come to Christ by faith and know that you have been crucified with Christ and the life you now live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. Live according to the promise. Don't live according to the law. Now, I wish I had some time to be able to go through a bunch of applications for this, but here's some things that you need to think about, just just some ways of doing this. We have a problem sometimes of, of the way that we correct our children is we think we need to tell them to make up for what they've done wrong. Now, I don't disagree that your child needs to understand the gravity of misbehaving. That's important, all right? But we need to make sure that they understand that they are striving to emulate what God would have them rather than that they are atoning for their bad behavior. We need to be careful about that. In our relationships with one another, right? I can do this with my spouse. I can be angry at you, and until I think you have atoned for how bad you've made me feel, I'm not going to forgive you. That's not good either, is it? That's putting someone right back under the law. We can do this in the work environment. Instead of teaching people about what it means to give grace and forgiveness, even when we don't deserve it, we want to just ground every little bit out of them that we can there's a lot of application to this to how we are supposed to live our lives we want to be people that show that we live according to a promise made to us not to those who think we're earning something under the law now one of the things I want to ask you to do is if you can I want to ask you to come back tonight Because in our final section of this series of Abraham and Advent, I want to teach us what can we expect from Christ when we come to Him? What would that look like? When when you come to Jesus and you come to Him, you got all the shame of feeling like, ugh, I can't believe I did this again. What can you expect from Him? That's what we're going to answer tonight. So I hope you'll come back. It's my little teaser for you to, to be able to come, my cliffhanger to put you on. So come back tonight and uh, hear the beautiful story of our magnificent Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. I am speaking specifically to my fellow brothers and sisters. We all, Lord, we, we feel this condemnation of sin and we forget. That, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, And so, Lord, please, I pray that we would not revert back to the law, but that we would plead our case through Christ even more. That way, Jesus is magnified. Not our effort to live in some holy, self-righteous life, but that we are going to proclaim that Christ was sufficient, that Jesus is enough, that this babe that was born to us 2,000 years ago who endured all the same environment that we endure and yet did not sin, in fact, delighted to do your will and be completely obedient to you throughout his life. We're going to trust, Lord, that that is enough, that your one and only Son is sufficient to cover our sins. And so, Lord, allow us to live like it. Allow us to constantly keep coming back to Jesus in repentance and faith. That, Lord, we would exercise this in our families. We'd exercise this in our friendships. We'd exercise this, Lord, to to new people that we come in contact with, that we are living according to the promise, not according to the law. And so, Lord, allow us to think upon Jesus' coming this year for what he truly did for us, to free us from the law, to free us from sin, from the slavery of so that when we enter into your presence, you don't look at us as though we are filthy sinners. You see us in the same exact way that you see your son, Jesus. Oh, Lord, how I need that. How we all need that. And I pray, Lord, for the friend that might be listening today who is struggling with their sin, that they realize this is the only thing that can save them. Press your Holy Spirit upon their hearts to want to seek you out and to come to Christ and to place their faith on Him and that their faith in Christ would be sufficient too. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.